community of faith. So our first point this morning is going to be no to the world and yes to the will of God. No to the world and yes to the will of God. And before we really dive into that point, we got to bring up the fact that our passage starts with the word since. Since therefore. Since therefore indicates that he is still continuing a flow of thought. You cannot read chapter 4 on its own without considering the previous content. And that's true with every book of the Bible. When you read through the books of the Bible, you need to put them all together in their context or you're going to lose the meaning. Peter is not starting something new here. He is attaching on to what has already been communicated. And the overall thrust of chapter 3 and the previous content is that Christians are called to lowliness and humility, gentleness and quietness. They're not to be harsh and rough. They're not to be people who use their force and might and um, other means to dominate and get their way, but rather they're to entrust themselves to God. And in that process will come suffering. You as Christians will suffer for your faith. And the Christian community that Peter is writing to is being persecuted at times. The, the government is ruling over them and suppressing them in certain ways in pockets of Rome. Not everywhere, but in certain areas, they're coming under fierce persecution. And Peter is reminding them that whether their leaders are just or unjust, it does not matter. They've been called to submission, and they've been called to honor uh, one another and honor those authorities that have been put over them, even if it results in Christian suffering. And he goes on to say that if you do suffer for Christ, it's good because you're following the example of Christ. Because Christ came to this earth as God and man, and though he had the highest authority in heaven, he still succumbed to suffering. He still took on a lowly position and washed disciples' feet and was lowly and meek and was mistreated, maligned. He was degraded. People verbally abused him. They called him names. They threw rocks at him. They eventually stripped him down into a shameful, humiliating crucifixion. And if Jesus did that, then why would we do anything else? That's sort of how he finishes off chapter 3, except the final like punch is that they say because Jesus was lowly, because he endured suffering and hardship and still maintained a righteous life and did not defend himself and did not retaliate but trusted God, he has now been exalted. And he rules over demons. He rules over angels. He rules over the principalities and powers of this earth. He has gone from the lowliest to the highest. And it fits right in with what Jesus taught in his earthly mission. He taught that the first will be last and the last will be first. The low will be brought up and the, the tall mountains will be brought down. That's the teaching of Jesus. That's the life of Jesus. And now we see Peter expounding upon that in this book. And so since therefore connects to that idea that Christians are going to suffer because Christ suffered. And suffering should happen no matter what the circumstances are. And the point he's making here is that Christ suffered in the flesh and that his suffering was a pathway to victory. If you this morning in this congregation want the Christian victory that's been promised in the scriptures, it's going to come through suffering. It's going to come through suffering. I do not understand how there are preachers in the world today who can 
in good conscience stand behind a pulpit and say that if you are a believer and living right with God, you will not suffer because I see the exact opposite in this text. I see the exact opposite, that you will suffer. It says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. He says to arm yourselves. And as Christians, we know about arming ourselves. We know about the, the spiritual armor of God. Many of you could probably quote from Ephesians chapter 6, the armor of God that you need, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, you know, all these, the sword of the Lord. You, you could quote all of these pieces of armor to put on, but Peter gives you a different armor. He says, arm yourselves with a suffering attitude, an attitude that intends to suffer not that you're going out looking for suffering don't lay down underneath my car as i back up later that's not what he's going for okay he is saying that because jesus suffered for doing good and standing up for the glory of god and never never giving in to what the world expected him to do and wanted him to do when you go out and do the same thing and are steadfast in your faith and you do not cave to the pressures and temptations of this world you are going to come under suffering and it's a little bit condemning to us if we are not suffering because i know in america we are very blessed and for a long time it has been quote unquote a christian nation um, but those days are past we are coming under major scrutiny we are coming under a, a new wave of treatment and we will see that most likely i believe get worse and worse as the days go on and and honestly that's the natural way it's very unnatural for the world to treat us good because we're christians it has always mistreated christians it has always persecuted christians um, and so you know with with the exceptions of those kingdoms and countries that were set up as a christian regime which that's a whole nother story for a whole nother time but christians living in worlds that were secular or or worshiped other gods or whatever that may be have always come under persecution so it is normal for christians to suffer arm yourselves with that put that on you are not to arm yourselves with force you are not to arm yourselves with the political you know prowess that you may hope to push on your city or your state or your nation it's not a political power it's not might it's not through weapons of warfare it, that's not what you are to arm yourselves with you are to arm yourselves with an attitude ready to suffer for christ right that doesn't sound very threatening to the enemy i'm willing to die i've armed myself with readiness to die that's how jesus does it that's, how, that's what he uses to change the world. He uses the blood of the saints as the seabed for the faith. He uses the mistreatment of God's people for some in the world's eyes to be opened to the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a hard calling to go in ready and willing and intending to suffer for the faith. But it's what Peter is saying you need to be prepared to do. No to the world, yes to the will of God. It says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Well, that might be a startling statement. If you have suffered, you have ceased from sin. 
That doesn't mean, once again, if you've gone out and you've gotten a car crash or you go out and you fall off a cliff and you break every bone in your body, that now you've ceased from sin because you've suffered. That's not the kind of suffering. Once again, you have to consider the context. And what we saw last week in 1 Peter chapter 3 is that Peter is talking about if you suffer for doing good. If you suffer for doing good. So that's the suffering. When you read the word suffering from here on out, unless he changes it somewhere along the way, you need to be thinking suffering for doing good. Like Jesus suffered for doing good. That was the example. And so whoever has suffered for doing good ceases from sin. Now why would he say that? Well, I think he says that because if you are of such a mindset that you say, when I go out these doors today, I'm going to let the word of God be my moral compass, my spiritual compass. It is going to be how I root myself in the world. It is going to be the very authority for what I say, what I do, and I don't care what happens to me out there. Even if they take away my livelihood, I will not, I will not cave when it comes to Scripture. I will not give in. I will stay steady in the will of God. If they take away my family, if they take away my life, Whatever they take away, they can threaten, they can do whatever they want, but I will not, under any circumstances, ever cave in my conviction and my devotion to Jesus Christ. If you have that kind of mindset, which is what Peter is talking about, then you're probably not going to be dealing with a lot of sin in your life. I know we have this like self-righteous attitude sometimes, or maybe not self-righteous, we have this, we have this attitude that doesn't want to admit that we can steer from sin. Like we want to say, oh, we're all sinners. And that's true. But there is also a truthfulness to the fact that when you become a Christian, you should be sinning less than when you were not a Christian. And when you've lived in the faith and you've grown in the spirit over the span of 10 years, you should be sinning less than than you were 10 years ago. Okay, so there is spiritual maturity. There is sanctification that should take place in the Christian life. And we, you've been so sanctified that you're to the point that you would suffer any harm and suffer death, as many martyrs have, in order to live for your Christian convictions and stand up for your faith. It's at that point that you have ceased from habitual sin that dominates many of our lives. That's what he's saying. There are other passages in uh, the scriptures that talk about no longer sinning. And it's not to say that you will never, ever, ever, ever sin again if you've gotten to this point. It's saying, just frankly, that you have entered into a level of spiritual maturity where you have learned self-control and you've learned to give Christ full reign over your body and follow the spirit rather than the flesh, which is what you should all be aiming for in your Christian life. It's what I should be aiming for in my Christian walk, to get to that point where we say yes to God and no to the world. It says, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. You see, the world, it tempts us daily. It asks of us subtly, to be like it is. It has you conform. I mean, seriously, take someone out of the church uh, 
400 years ago, put them in a time machine, and bring them to today and set them even in this congregation. And they would look around and be like, what's wrong with you people? What are you doing? Why are you, why are you dressed like that? Why are you showing skin on your arms in Alaska of all places? You know, it would, it would just be really different because we have a tendency to think like the world and to be like the world. And I'm not saying short sleeves are sin or anything like that. I'm just saying we gravitate with the world. As it changes, we change. And we have to be careful not to be sucked into some of these changes that may be sinful and we start to treat them like they're normal everyday things. I think we're seeing that in the world. We're seeing that in the church today. People embracing lifestyles, people embracing um, practices that are actually sinful according to the scripture, but because it's been normalized in society, we just take it and run with it. Can't be like that. We have to look at what God's word says and be willing to even die for that. No to the world and yes to the will of God. It goes on, uh, uh, the second point I want to make today is we need to say no to self-satisfaction and yes to spiritual surrender. It's one thing for us to cave into what the world's doing, their passions, their way of life, uh, but there's a whole other enemy, and it's the enemy of you and the enemy of me and what we want because we were born into sinful flesh. We were born with selfish desires. Uh, we call it the sin nature theologically. We have been born into depravity, and because of that, there is a tendency to do for me what I want. But yet the scriptures call us to die to self, to say no to self-satisfaction, and yes to the Spirit of God and the Word of God as they lead us. Verse 3 says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Now, I read that list when I was first getting ready to prepare for this sermon. I'm like, great, my last sermon is the orgy sermon. That's not really what I wanted, God, but okay, this is what we're doing. We're not going to camp there, though. Uh, I just want to bring out that their practices were evil back then, and we like to think that they're like way grosser than us and way worse than us, but I promise you that in the world right now is a lot of these same practices that are going on, and the world does these things and they've always done these things things don't really change they change in their packaging like we don't have an idol temple down the street where drunkenness and all this sensuality is going on but we do have the bar and it's kind of the same thing they're just not bowing down to anybody because we're more of a secular culture they're bowing down to self and they're going to please self and so we have drug abuse that runs rampant in our community and it's because self-pleasure is god and they will stop at nothing to please self. And greed is another one. I mean, there are all sorts of sins and temptations we could put on the table. But the point is we do it because we like it. And we are in control of our own self. Instead of letting God dominate and let God call the shots over us. The time has passed, he says, for these things. If you're a Christian here this morning, there was a time where you may have lived like that. You lived for self. But Peter is saying, the time for living for self is done. If you're a Christian, it's done. So quit, quit being tempted to go back to that because that's done. You're through with that. You've been saved out of that. That's why Jesus died on the cross, to pull you out of those practices so you don't have to be bondage to them anymore. And yet, sometimes Christians have this fleeting temptation to go back to it. And Peter's like, stop that. That time is over. The time is done. The time is past for pleasing one's self. 
He goes on to say here in verse 3, the time has passed for doing what the Gentiles do. Just as a side note, I want to remind you that Peter views the Christian church, though it's made up of Jews and Gentiles, he views them as the people of God. And so he refers to them not as Gentiles. They're no longer Gentiles, even though some of them are actually Gentiles by our definition of a Gentile being a non-Jew. He views the Christian church as spiritual Israel, just like Paul did. That's why he says in chapter 2 that they are the temple of God, the living stones built up into the temple. He calls them a living priesthood. He gives the same quotations from Exodus that's applied to Israel, to the Christian church. This is just the very common way that the New Testament writers refer to the Christian church. They are Israel. They've been grafted in. So now Gentiles just refers to those outside of the faith, the people who are not in the community of God. And so he says that the time for doing what they do, all these sins we mentioned, is past. And it says in verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. The world, when they're looking at us, they are shocked and surprised when we don't do what they do. And you're like, they were surprised when people didn't get drunk? Yes, they were. And in high school, my friends were surprised when I wouldn't go get drunk with them. They were very surprised. They didn't understand. They couldn't fathom why I would not want to go do that. And I went with my friend to, one time I went with my friend to a party. He like begged me to come along. I went in and there was someone passed out in the bathroom with blood coming out of his head. He had hit the toilet on the way down and was laying in vomit. And I said, hmm, looks like fun, guys. And that, I left and that was the last of that. So that was God's way of solidifying my conviction. <laughs> it was not fun. Okay, and so the point is, though, the world, like they don't understand why you don't laugh at the dirty joke around the water cooler at work. You know, five guys are there, they're laughing, having a good time about it, and you're sitting there like, that's not funny. That's degrading. That's evil. And they don't understand. They don't understand why you don't listen to the music they listen to. They don't understand why you sacrifice one to two hours every Sunday morning when you could be out fishing. You're here sitting with people listening to some long-winded preacher go on and on and on about the same old stuff about God being good and the devil being bad. They don't understand. They think you're crazy. They don't understand. They really don't understand. And they're very surprised when they find out that some of you give 10% or more of your income to the church. They're like, that sermon wasn't that good. It's not worth 10%. Now, throw a nickel in the plate, but it's not worth 10%. That's a lot of money. They don't realize. They don't understand that that's not paying for the sermon or else you all need refunds. Okay, that's, that's giving to God, a sacrifice to God. But they don't understand that. That money could have, you know, take 10% over, you know, the 30 years you've been a Christian and you might be able to buy a house. They don't understand. They're surprised. They're surprised when you don't do what they do. They don't get it. Okay? That is, if you're living the godly life. If you're laughing at the joke at the water cooler, if you're, you know, participating in the drunkenness if you're doing those things and you're claiming to be a christian this morning you know last week it said that when you live and suffer you know, live righteously and suffer for the good that you do be ready to give an answer for the faith that's in you because people are going to ask why you're so weird but if you're like half 
in and half out, lukewarm, living for the world and living for God, laughing at their jokes and trying to be pious and holy on Sunday morning, they're not going to ask. They're, they might ask. They say, why are you wasting your time? You're no different than us. But the fact is, if you want an audience with, with God and an audience with man, the, it starts with a strong Christian conviction that is willing to suffer and die for your differentness, your holiness. Not every time that you stand up for righteousness are you going to get an audience, though. I want to make that clear. Because I don't want you to go out and live righteously and then someone not to uh, you know, ask you for why you were doing that. Sometimes they just criticize you. And that's what Peter says here. Last chapter, he said they may ask you why you live that way. Sometimes they just degrade you. And it says here that they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They're surprised and they malign you. They don't come asking, how can I be like you? They just tear you down. Be ready for that. You may get an audience and you may get to share your faith, but sometimes you're like Jeremiah. And you just go and you keep trucking along, doing what God has asked you to do, being faithful to the one who's called you with no fruit that is visible before your eyes. But do know this, that one day, a judgment day, you'll be rewarded for your faithfulness and those who malign you will be judged for their evil. Which is kind of where we're going. It says, but they will give an account, in verse 5, to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You're not righteous just because you might get something out of it. You're not righteous just because you might win a soul to Jesus, even though that's you know, a good thing to do. You're righteous just because you've been called to be righteous. That's enough. God will handle the rest. You plant the seeds, God will bring the increase. Trust him in this. They will give an account to him. It says, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Now, that doesn't mean preached to dead people. That doesn't, that's not even referencing back to the spirits in prison thing. This is simply saying the Christians who have already died. The reason that the gospel was preached to great-great-grandma was because of the resurrection to come, because of the eschaton. Peter is taking us into eschatology right now. The rest of this passage is going to be framed within an eschatological you know, discourse. He is talking about the end of time and what's going to take place in the end. And it's important for us to realize that. It's important to, for us to realize that we need to be suffering for righteousness. We need to be willing to stand convicted of what God's going to do because the end is near. And so point number three, we need to say no to temporal enjoyment and yes to eternal employment. No to temporal enjoyment and yes to eternal employment. You see the drunkenness and all of these things that have been talked about with Peter, they are temporal. They pass away. You're not, you don't get enjoyment forever out of them. In fact, that's one of the bad things about drugs. It gives you this temporary high and makes you more dependent on it for having just a normal day. So you got to keep feeding it. It's temporal. But the satisfaction that you get from serving Christ and loving God and being in his family and in his kingdom is an eternal, not just enjoyment, but employment. Yeah, you get to keep working. You get to keep being meaningful. You get to keep serving. And so it tells us here in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. 
Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The end of all things is at hand. Peter is reminding us, as he just did, he said, judgment day is coming. The end of all things is at hand. Now, it's been 2,000 years since this was written, but I need you to understand this clearly. The writers of the New Testament, including Jesus, who didn't write anything in the New Testament, but was recorded, his teachings were recorded in the New Testament text. These people, under the inspiration of the Spirit, wrote down in many places that it was the end. They believed that Jesus could come again at any time. If you hold to an end-time view that requires some things to happen before Jesus can come, so you're sort of sitting back waiting for those, that's faulty thinking. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that he can show up right now. He can show up right now. I've always wanted to say that and to be the time. I'll just keep doing it. <laughs> but he can. He can come at any given moment. That's, there's so many parables that Jesus gives that says the people at fault were the ones who weren't looking, waiting, and watching for his coming. He's coming. Be ready. He's coming. He can come at any time. And Peter is the one who wrote 2 Peter. And in 2 Peter, he addresses the fact that Jesus has you know, delayed his coming. And that was, you know... A long time ago, he said he's delayed his coming because he's long-suffering and he's not willing that any should perish. He doesn't want anybody in this room right now to end up in hell, eternally separated from the Father. He wants you to be saved. He wants you to enjoy the loving kindness that he bestows upon every believer, grafting you into the family of God. He wants that for you. And so he's waiting. But he's not going to wait forever. And when he's ready to come, he's going to come. If you're waiting for some perfect red heifer to be born in the Middle East, stop. If you're waiting for some blood moon to happen, stop. That's not what it teaches. Yeah, there's some scripture that addresses signs of the times and things like that. But I think if you dig a little more, you'll find out that a lot of those signs are, have been fulfilled in one sense or another already. If you're waiting for a temple to be rebuilt in the Middle East, stop. You're looking at the temple right now when you look at each other. Peter already said that. You're like living stones built up into a temple of God. Stop waiting. The end is near. Now, if you read theological literature, you'll come across this. It wasn't that fancy of a quote or fancy of a phrase. It's called already slash not yet. I think they did give it a little bit better if you, if you like real fancy theological words. It's called inaugurated eschatology, but uh, most people refer to the already not yet. And there is a sense in which the end has already begun. Jesus referred to it when he said the kingdom of God is upon you. The kingdom of God is here. You won't have to look for it. It's here. And so there is a sense in which the last days have already begun. But there is also a sense in which Jesus said... It's coming. It's down the pipe a little bit, and we're waiting for it. So we live in this weird tension that we're already in the end of time, and we have been. Some of us call it the church age, but however you want to phrase it, we've been in this last state, and it's going to all get wrapped up when Jesus returns. He's going to come. He's going to make things right. And so the point being made here, I don't want to delay, the point being made is that the way you live should reflect the way you believe. And the way you should believe is that Jesus can come right now. 
one of these days. I want to bring out one more element from this that I think is important to Peter because this is the third week in a row that he's referenced it. It says in verse 7 that the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. If you remember when we talked about husbands and wives, it says if they're in a chaotic relationship and they're not you know, exhibiting God's order in the home and they're not treating each other the way that they're supposed to treat each other, then their prayers are hindered. And then last week, it said in 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. Indicating that if you're righteous and if you're submitting to God, if you're pursuing holiness and unity in the church and um, loving kindness, then God's ears are open to you. He hears your prayer. And he repeats this again right here in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 7. He tells us to act as if Jesus could come at any moment and that we should be ready to suffer for righteousness. Why? For the sake of your prayers. If you're saying yes to the world and no to the will of God, if you're saying yes to self-satisfaction and no to spiritual surrender, if you're saying yes to temporal enjoyment and no to eternal employment, then why in the world do you think God would listen to you? You've rejected everything that he's already told you. You're not listening, so stop talking. When you're ready to be heard, you need to start by listening to the word of God. Listen to him and respond to that. That's the proper way. Otherwise, you will be asking for things that aren't good for you. Like my kids who ask to have Reese's Cups for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I'm not going to give them those things. My ear is cut off. If my son asks me for video games today, there will be, you know, wrath. <laughs> there will be much wrath. Okay, I've cut that off. I'm no longer listening to that because I don't want him to play any more video games. Yes, I know we got rid of all your toys. Yes, I know you're in an empty house with absolutely nothing to do, but it's not raining outside, so go climb a tree or something. Do not, do not ask me for video games. Our communication is cut off when he does that. I do not turn an ear to that anymore. And God gets frustrated with our selfishness as well, especially because our selfishness isn't good for us. I, I'm not trying to ruin my son's good time. I just know video games will rot your brain. And I'd rather him do some other things. Yeah, he gets to play them. He gets to play them plenty. But there are other things I want him to do. There are other foods other than processed sugar I want him to eat. Okay? And God wants what's best for us. So when we stop being selfish with our prayers, he starts listening to them. When we start honoring him with our lives, he starts turning his ear to us. We move on to the point number four, no, no to man's grumbling, yes to God's gifts. It reads in verse eight, above all, Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. No to man's grumbling. Because oftentimes we obey God out of compulsion and out of a, a uh, obligation. It's the word I was looking for. Out of obligation. We 
feel we need to do this even though we really, 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 really don't want to. And I understand it's a part of spiritual maturity. There are going to be times in your early Christian life where God calls on you to do things that you don't want to do. And even as spiritually mature people, we're going to come across those moments. But as a general rule of thumb, as we grow in sanctification, as we grow in holiness, our wants and desires should start to look like Jesus's. We're united to him and we're daily putting to death the old man and his old ways. And so we should start to want the things he wants. It says to show hospitality without grumbling. Maybe inviting someone over to stay for dinner is like a burden to you. Maybe that'd be a big burden. I, I think if that's the case, maybe some spiritual growth would be good. And I'm not trying to come over for dinner, even though I've got no table to sit at. So just saying. No, I, honestly, this church has been so hospitable. During this time of transition, I've had people offer me spare bedrooms. Uh, I've had people offer me meals. I've had people feed me meals. I've had so many people reach out that I've had to turn most of them away and say, no, I don't need anything. It's all been met. And I've got people at the church I'm heading to right now offer the same stuff. They're like, how can we help? How can we help? And so I, I'm like, oh, let's see, I'm not there yet. I guess when I get there, you know, make sure that there's a carton of milk in the refrigerator or something, you know, and they're, they're on it. That's good. That's how the church should be. And, you know, we've tried to practice hospitality in our home. It's one of the reasons we became small group leaders. Uh, we love to have people over. That's one of Katie's special gifts, by the way. Um, you know, I, I like it too, but she's really good at it. She she makes me scrub the corners and stuff that I wouldn't have done for you guys. You know, if you're coming out, like, yeah, it's, you know, it's just, you know, people I know, people I see. It's not the Queen of England, <laughs> you know, but she, she usually makes it look like it's for the Queen of England and because that's, that's her gifting. And so hospitality has been a way that we could show love to our friends here at the church and, and inviting people over and trying to make sure there's enough food to go around, that kind of thing. And um, we... Uh, we hope to do that when we go to Nebraska. You know, we're looking for houses right now from afar. And one of the things we're looking for, like, okay, this house, you know, we don't need a huge house for just us, uh, but I would like a big room so that I can fit, you know, a small group in or something like that. And plus a spare bedroom for when all you guys on your vacations want to come and visit me in Nebraska <laughs> on your vacation. <laughs> it, it's there. It's available. But I, I made that joke in the first service, and then I had, like, you know, a handful of people come by and they're like, yeah, I'm coming through Nebraska next year. And I'm like, please, yeah, if you are, if that happens to be where God has destined your travels, then please reach out. I love to meet up with you. I've had friends come through Alaska that were, you know, we met somewhere along the way in the south and they ended up, you know, meeting up with us. We love that. So please do. But it's a challenge to you as well. You know, you're called to be hospitable. That was a big deal to God's people in the Old Testament. And it's a really big deal in Peter's context because we're dealing with a scattered church, a church that's out away from um, people that they may have known. They're called the dispersed. And they're also called foreigners, sojourners, aliens in a strange land. And yet God is calling on them to be hospitable. It's kind of backwards, right? Normally you would be hospitable to the person traveling through. Uh, but Kenny and Regina said they're going to come to Nebraska and they are going to invite me over for dinner. And I was like, how's that going to work? And they said, it's a fifth wheel. I was like, all right. So they will be 
the sojourner, and they're going to be showing the hospitality. It's kind of how Jesus did it as well. Jesus was traveling in Luke chapter 24 on the road to Emmaus, and he was invited in by the couple of disciples. They didn't realize it was Jesus at this time, but they invited this stranger in to eat with them. And when Jesus gets in there, it says that he was serving them the bread. And it also says that one day in heaven, he will serve us at the wedding feast of the Lamb strange to me it's like that's backwards but that's what he's called us to he's called us to service he's called us to humility he's called us to win the battle through putting on the armor of suffering it's all backwards but that's jesus's kingdom it's the upside down topsy-turvy kingdom and we need to trust it that it's going to bring the victory no to man's grumbling but yes to God's gifts. It goes on here to talk about the gifts of hospitality, the gifts to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. You see, every person in this church that is a believer has been equipped with a spiritual gift or gifts. Don't necessarily believe you're limited to one. And so you need to find out what that gift is. Now, I'm on my way out of here tomorrow, so I don't have time to sit down and do all that. But I know Daniel has been spending a significant amount of time going through spiritual gifts with his college class. And I, I could tell he's kind of like it's one of those passions that has grown in him. And I told the last service that if I come back next year in the summer and he's still doing spiritual gifts, I'm going to have to kind of coach him out of that because sometimes we grab a hold of something we love and we won't ever let go and everybody's like oh spiritual gifts again oh come on so but for now it's good he's he's growing in the spiritual gifts coaching area so if you want to find out what your spiritual gift is i advise you to go talk to daniel and uh, he can point you in the right direction on that but the fact is you have a gift and your gift is there for a reason and it's not for you it's not for you your gift is there it says to serve others to serve one another as good stewards it's not even your gift it's God's gift that he's sharing with you to pour out on someone else and it says that through doing this that's love that we are expressing to one another and that's what we're called to to love one another and it says that our love will cover a multitude of sins that doesn't mean it's covering up your sin you don't cover up your sin by loving someone else you don't cover up their sin before God by loving them. I could love someone to death and they can still end up separated from God forever because of their sin. But what it does do is when you express love and you're showing God's gracious gifting and pouring that out on them, the list of wrongs in your head against them, the sin that they have in your eyes disappears because you've learned to be gracious and give love the way that God has bestowed gifts upon you, even though you didn't deserve them. That's how you're covering a multitude of sins, and that's how harmony is established in the church, because we quit looking at each other's faults and flaws, and we stop honing in on how they wronged us in the past, and we begin to embrace one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, who are all united together by the same Spirit. The final point, no to human effort and yes to God's glory. Verse 11 tells us 
that whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, your gifts are not of your own doing. You know, I always have to remind people, playing guitar is not my spiritual gift. I learned how to play guitar by practicing and working on it and all that fun stuff. Just like an atheist would learn to play guitar. That's not a spiritual gift. A gift is something God gives to you that you don't work for. The word spiritual gifts comes from the Greek word charisma. And charis is the Greek word for grace. It's grace. It's grace given to you. Something you did not earn. Something you do not deserve. Yes, we can um, maybe develop it. And oftentimes God will use our talents. Like guitar, I could be using it for, you know, self-promotion and trying to, you know, be famous. Or I can use it, which wouldn't work out for me, by the way. But I could be using it to exhort people in the church and, and lead them in praise. So God uses the gift of exhortation, couples it with my talents, and now it becomes a gift useful for his service. Okay, But it's not my strength. It's not your strength. You can't do this. This has to come from God. It is the power of God that we need to elevate. We don't need to elevate people in the church we need to elevate God in the church. No to human effort. Yes to God's glory. It concludes here. And what a great conclusion from my last Sunday here. It says, In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion. Not to you. Not to me. But to him. Be glory and dominion. Forever and ever. Amen. This passage reminds us that none of us in the church are irreplaceable. And when God calls one of us to another place, God fills the gap. And there have been times of panic on myself, which shows uh, a a little spiritual immaturity where someone who filled a lot of roles in the church ends up moving away and I'm like, oh no, no, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? The walls are going to cave. And then a week later, no offense to them, but it's like, oh, they never left. It's like they never left. (laughs) And that's not because they weren't great people. It's not because they didn't fulfill a major role in service. It's because God works like that. He's calling people right now to fill any kind of void that I may leave when I go tomorrow. That's just the way God works. I'm not irreplaceable. I don't think that I'm irreplaceable in any way. No minister is. If Scott leaves tomorrow, he's not irreplaceable. You know, any of our Sunday school teachers, while we love them, while we need them, while we want them, uh, if they leave, if, if there's someone in the church who is following the Spirit, God will lead them into the role. He will take care of his body. He will take care of this body. He will take care of the body to which I'm headed right now. That's how he works. But it's not about us. We've got to remember that. It's not about us getting our way and doing what we want. It's about God receiving glory and honor by our humble service and ultimately through our suffering our suffering. We have been called 
to that. We need to put that on and be ready and willing to lay it all on the line for Jesus Christ. I thank this church for the years that I've had with you guys. Um, whether you've been here just a few short months or whether you've been here for the last 10, it's been an honor and a blessing. You are good people. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. I love being with you and serving with you. And it, it will be, I say no one's irreplaceable, but I got to say, when I come and visit, I know how it's going to feel. I, I've left churches before and I've went back to them years later for like revival services. And I was like, oh, wow, this feels so good. And I know it's going to be even more magnified when I come back and visit here in a year or two years, however long it takes to get me back here, hopefully a year, hopefully next summer. Um, but it, it's just a reminder of what heaven will be like one day when we sit around with all the saints that we've loved and cherished over the years. So whatever God has in store, I, I pray a blessing over this congregation. I pray that you continue to flourish and grow and to be strengthened in the love of Christ for one another, that there would be unity and not division. I pray, uh, I pray a blessing over those of you serving in various capacities, that you'll continue to be strong, following your spiritual gifts, and not to grow weary in well-doing. But for the ultimate glory of Christ, I pray that you can keep on and keep reaching the next generation. I hope I can come here in 40 years from now and sit down in this church. And even though some of you will no longer be here, hopefully, hopefully I'll still be here <laughs> in 40 years. But if I come and sit down, I hope to sit down in a thriving College Heights that did not seek their own and dwindle out into nothing because of selfishness, but were willing to lay it all on the line so that others might know Jesus and they could come and worship and grow and serve for his glory. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our time here today. I thank you for your word. I pray, as I've just spoken, a blessing over this congregation. I pray for the leadership of this church. I pray for the deacons that are currently serving and the deacons that will be elected soon that you will give them uh, you'll give this church what they need to fill those holes lord i pray for those that are in this congregation that have not quite tapped into their spiritual gift lord that today would be the day that they begin thinking about that and finding a way to be useful for your kingdom i pray lord for um, the various people throughout the years that have poured into me personally um, i pray for all the, uh, the people who have poured into my, my wife and my children, Lord, that have uh, encouraged them in their faith, and Lord, have made serving here really easy, probably too easy and comfortable. Lord, I pray that you would just bless them and, and make it just as delightful for those who follow after. Lord, I pray that you would continue to bless Pastor Scott and his family, Lord, as they minister to this flock, and I pray, Lord, that um, he would continue to, to feed uh, them in a way that would lead them into a, a selfless and God-honoring ministry. Lord, I pray, Father, that you would just continue to help our relationship flourish, and even though we are far away and distant, Lord, I pray that you would just... Uh, that you would help us to, to love one another and to be sharing in prayer and sharing even in ministry at, at times, Lord. And I pray, Father, that you forgive us of our sins. And I pray all of this in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.